Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, music nerds. Welcome back. This is episode nine of season four. So that's week nine, nine weeks in a row. We've been connecting here, talking about music and nerdy stuff, and just trying to deal with everything and get through life as we now know it. This week on the show, we are brought to you by our two sponsors, Union Tube and Transistor, making wicked pedals for you from Vancouver, Canada. And also from Vancouver, Canada, our new sponsor is Black Mountain Picks. We are doing a giveaway for both of those companies, and it's happening this week, and it'll be happening very shortly here. But this week, our guest on the show is guitarist and groovy dude all around, Sadler Baden. Sadler, many people know as the guitar player in Jason Isbell's 400 unit, and they have a brand new record out, brand spanking new record out called Reunions, which is awesome. And Sadler has a brand new solo record out also called Anybody Out There. And that came out a few months ago. And we're going to talk all about that stuff and also just how crazy of timing it was for him putting out this record, you know, like before before this stuff all happened and, you know, fully intending to go out and promote the record and do some touring and whatnot. And we're going to talk about how that all changed and what that meant for him as well as his history, and lots of interesting guitar stuff. So that's what's on the horizon for today. So things around here, man, Nashville's crazy. It's like fully open, it seems like, stores and restaurants and everything. I am not going out still. I am laying low. I still have barely left the house in like 10 weeks, 
And I'm going to keep it that way for a while because I don't like it out there right now. So that's me, and I'm pretty pretty busy here. Uh, we're doing this Hen House Express thing where me and some friends are recording remotely and delivering a complete track to people that come to us. Every every week we're, we're going through uh, two, three, four songs recorded and mixed, and that's going really well. So I'm busy with that fairly, like not as busy as I used to be in the good old days, but pretty busy doing that kind of thing. And then some other sessions and a few lessons. I'm teaching some guitar and some pedal steel and some recording stuff. So that's all going well for me for now, I guess. Like this is kind of my new life, not being out touring at all. I've also weirdly been bonding with equipment in weird ways here. Uh, Like I have gear. I don't have like a ton of gear, but I have a good chunk of equipment and it's all just stuff I use. And like I, I do sessions and I do gigs and I grab stuff for gigs and I take it and I use it. And I, for sessions, I grab it off the wall and I use it and then I put it back on the wall, but I don't really get a chance to like mess with stuff for long periods of time when I'm not using it in a session or a gig. And now I kind of do have that time. And I've been bonding with guitars that I haven't played as much, some pedals and things like that, that just kind of sat there until I had a session and then I would turn them on and use them. And, you know, I know them, but I don't know the ins and outs. And some of them have like little secret things that they do. So that's been kind of fun and interesting is like getting deeper into some of the equipment that I have rather than buying a bunch of new equipment, not that I can afford to anyway these days, but you know, just like really getting to know certain things and the ins and outs and the way that things react to each other is such an interesting, it's an endless combination. The thing, the amount of equipment that I have now, it's an, a lifetime of discovery. And uh, yeah, it's kind of nice to have that time to, to check it all out and, and get deep into it. I'm going to give you a couple music recommendations because I like to do that. And I don't know if you like them or not, but it's just stuff that I've been listening to. I listen to a lot of music, obviously, and uh, I've got stuff on the go all the time. So this week, oh, and, and I like to tell you about an oldie and a newie. So uh, actually, here, here's an oldie and a medium and a newie. So the oldie is one of my favorite steel guitar records of all time. It's called Charlie Pride, in person, live. So Charlie Pride amazing singer we all know and he was incredible but he had this band in the in the early days that was basically like him and a drummer and Lloyd Green on steel and um, man this record Charlie Pride in person it's a live record it's super simple very stripped down but it's like the most textbook pedal steel playing for me anyway for my taste in pedal steel it doesn't get any better than that and I and Charlie Pride's so happening and so funny and he, he sings his ass off and the songs are short like a lot of them are like under two minutes, and uh, it's just a great record. So check that one out. Uh, I've been listening to the new Blake Mills record, Mutable Set, which is really interesting. Uh, I don't know, like that guy, he's a genius guitar player and engineer and producer and all that stuff. Sometimes I wish he would just play his damn guitar. Um, he doesn't seem to want to do that these days that much anymore, uh, or or maybe on record he doesn't want to do that. So that's cool, but... In any case, the songs are really cool and interesting and textural, and the record's interesting and cool and textural. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. It's not what I was expecting, uh, which is kind of par for the course for him, and I'm enjoying it. And then my third recommendation is a medium-y because it's kind of 
it's like a 10-year-old record, but it's been reissued on vinyl. And it's uh, the Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings record, Harrow and the Harvest. Man, that sounds so good. They waited to put their catalog out on vinyl because they just never liked the test pressings, I guess. But I believe they have their own pressing, like test pressing lathe there, and they're doing it themselves. And it sounds amazing. So that record, uh, if you're into that kind of stuff and you know that record, Heroin the Harvest is a great one from, I think it was 2011, and they've reissued it on vinyl, and it sounds incredible, and it's really beautiful, and it's all like the packaging is amazing too. So check that out. Okay, it's contest time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we have opened up the phone lines and uh, any callers that had um, called in to talk about what's going on with them during the virus were entered into this contest for a union tube and transistor pedal. It's called a bean counter, which is really a version of one of their many pedals. And it's just slightly scaled down aesthetically, but fully operationally uh, union tube pedal. So there's versions of seven or eight of their main pedals and the winner of that is dan whitehouse who called in i don't know three or maybe three weeks ago or something he was in yokohama japan i assume he's still there although he was um british so i don't know exactly where he is but dan if you're listening you just need to get in touch with me and we will ship out a union pedal of your choice and some union swag as well and the other prize that I'm going to be giving away this week and next week is from our new sponsor, Black Mountain Picks. And I got to say, I'm digging these picks. I'm using it, uh, you know, anytime I change stuff like that, like a pick or whatever, I give it some time. And then usually like at a gig or something, everything goes out the window and I just go back, I revert, but there's no gigs, so I'm not reverting. (laughs) And uh, I've been using this uh, in recording a bunch. It's a spring-loaded thumb pick. It's very interesting, and it's a guy in Vancouver. Anyway, Black Mountain Picks, check them out. They're our, our sponsor here as well. And Pete Cornelius, a caller, I think he's, I think he called in this week, so we're going to hear from him in a sec. But he was entered, and he won two of these cool Black Mountain Picks. And I'm also going to give away two more next week. So keep calling in. Uh, keep calling in anyway, even if there's not um, prize incentives. I really like hearing from everybody. So congratulations to both of those winners. Just contact me and we'll get those prizes out to you. Once again, I would love for people to call in and still let's keep talking about what's happening out there. Uh, let's have some music suggestions, some creative ideas of uh, you know what you're up to or if you've found ways to express yourself or record music or whatever it is. I'd love to hear from you and I love hearing from people all over the world. So please call in. The number again is 615-375-6318. And I will be giving away two more Black Mountain picks next week to a caller. So call in and leave a message. You can also email me at steve at thehenhousestudio.com and just send me a voicemail there or whatever, and that'll count as a call in as well. And I'll play a couple on the show, and we'll just keep that going for a little while here. It seems to be something that people are interested in hearing about from other callers and listeners, and I'm also happy to hear from people. So please feel free to get in touch. Hey, we have a new website up and running at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Go check it out. Let me know what you think. Uh, Let me know if there's any issues. Um, If there's a problem or you run into a dead link or something, I'd love to hear about that and we'll get it fixed quickly. And of course, we're on Facebook and Instagram as well. So let's connect out there on those things if you're into that kind of stuff. So whether this show stays weekly or if it goes to bi-weekly, I can really use your help keeping it going. As you know, the podcast is essentially listener-supported. And if you are 
in a position where you can contribute and you feel like it and you're a, a listener and a fan of the show, you can do that a couple of very simple ways. Just head over to the new website at makersandshakerspodcast.com and in the top right corner, there's a donate button and that will allow you to donate with a one-time donation, which is very straight ahead, or you can become a Patreon subscriber. And I started a thing this week that's going to go every two weeks, I believe, where if you are a Patreon sub subscriber, uh, what I'm going to do is just take a track of a song that I've produced or played on that I have the tracks to, and there's a lot of them. I've produced over 100 records at this point, so there's quite a few out there. Uh, and whether you know the song or not, um, I think you'll find it interesting, and I'll just tear apart the song, and we'll look at the tracks, and tell you. I'll tell you a little bit about the session and the artist. And the first one is a session I did about 10 years ago with Bruce Colburn for a song called Honey Babe, Let the Deal Go Down. So that's posted on the website now, and it's free for anybody to look at. But uh, as of the next one that'll come out in about a week, they're going to be for Patreon subscribers only. So if you subscribe on Patreon, you will have access to those, and they should be fun and interesting. So watch for those. And we did have some supporters this week that I would like to thank. Jordan Minor, Don Rogers, Ed Rudolph, and Steve Nicholson all contributed to the show this week, and I really appreciate you guys. Thank you. You're cool. So, on to this week's show, Sadler Vaden. He's a killer guitar player. He's been obviously really busy over the last bunch of years being in Jason Isbell's 400 unit, and they have that brand new record out. But he has his own record, which is called Anybody Out There, and is very cool and chock full of badassery on the guitar, so check that out. Uh, but yeah, Sadler, I got to know about a year and a bit ago, I guess. Uh, my friend JT from Birds of Chicago was producing a record, and uh, the artist was a wonderful songwriter from California named Lisa Sanders. And that record is not out yet. Hopefully it will be soon. And uh, Sadler and I were both playing guitars on that record, and it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of uh, Great kind of dual guitar moments. Not guitar duels, but like, you know, two guitars. We found a lot of common ground. It was really, really cool and, and uh, fun to be involved with him. Anyway, he's uh, he's been in Nashville for the last seven or eight years, and uh, he's had a great run doing his own music and playing with Jason Isbell all over the world, and that continues to this day. And I thought it would be really interesting to hear from him. Um, he's a, you know, he's a Nashville guy that doesn't really have a lot of interest in being a session dude. He's more interested in being a, in a band and, you know, like taking a, as, as he kind of gets into in, the, in this interview, Heartbreakers approach where they're studio guys in a way, but they're basically a band and, and they got known as a band and they, and they're respected as, as band guys as much as they are known for their studio work outside of that, they're really known as that core group. And I think he really identifies with that. So it's sort of a, an interesting and different take from, uh, from other guys that we've heard from the Nashville area. And it was great to have him here. And so let's get into it. This is my conversation with Sadler Vaden. I've been asking everyone that I've been talking to the last couple of weeks, obviously like what, you know, what you're doing in with all your, time before we actually start talking about your music stuff you know yeah. I'm, I'm curious about how you're spending your time and like both musically and otherwise like kind of what's up you know it's something that we talk about um i have callers in on the show and everyone's sort of talking about that kind of stuff these days so i'd like to get your take on it well let me start by saying that i i, I mean it's a privilege that that uh some of us can you know self-isolate and be in be in our homes safely 
and boredom is really a privilege. Um, so yeah, I think that's what I've been really keeping in mind, but man, I have found that the days go by really fast. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I'm horrified with that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of like, wow, like, this is really going by fast. Like you would think it'd be the other way around, but, um, it's really strange. There's like two extremes. It's like, you're enjoying the simplicity of life. Like I'm taking a walk. I am, you know, <laughs> a lot of people are making bread, which is yeah. really funny. That's a thing all of a sudden. Yeah. That, that's yeah. And then like, you know, you're just like sitting on your porch, um, <laughs> things like that. But then there's like the complete opposite of like, we're Skyping and we're, you know, watching concerts on our phone and we have all the music movies and TV shows in the world at our fingertips, most of us. And, um, and suddenly time to watch them. Yeah. And like, and then like, I find I'm just not doing that very Mm -hmm. much. (laughs) So for me, um, I've been kind of straightening up things, you know, like sort of like getting rid of stuff, doing those home projects that you haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are you over in, are you in East Nashville? No, I live in Woodbine. Oh, okay. So I'm like, you know, you know where that is? Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm over here. You know, I've been, I've actually just been, I've been playing a lot of guitar. I've been diving in the parts of the guitar that I hadn't really, or maybe just not, I hadn't, hadn't like gone to yet, but I've just been spending time like, you know what, I'm going to learn, um, more, some more like, uh, I guess elements of like jazz and things like that, that I've never That's really cool. gotten around to, you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm self taught. So right. right. I understand when someone breaks it down for me or I watch a video or something like I, I get it and I can figure out how to apply it. But um, just doing things like that, like like being able to apply like in an A7 where dominant, being able to apply like the G major seven scale <laughs> to that. It's like I never really like I'm sure I have done it, but it hadn't registered. Um, yeah, it's like now it's like I can do it like it's like a conscious saying like I can go, OK, well, if I'm if I'm in a minor, well, the flat third is C, so I can apply the C major seven to yeah. that. Yeah. And that's a really cool thing. And then then you start working on like your phrasing and timing and thing and all that. Um, and uh, so, you know, I've just been trying to keep my brain healthy with music. And uh, yeah, I had so uh, that's. I had Jim Campolongo on the show the last week and he was talking about how he feels like zero creativity and he's sort of like, he's sort of like tense these days and, and just finds this time to be not creative at all. But so he's like developing crazy, like arpeggios and stuff. Yeah. Wow. I mean that to me, that sounds creative. (laughs) Yeah, it sort of is. Yeah. I guess to him, it's not like he thinks of being creative as like, you know, creating a song maybe like writing songwriting or, or whatever the way that he usually is. But I, th- I think he's right. You know, yeah. Right. And you're right. He calls it not creative, but really that's like extremely creative in, in a, in a, in a way. So yeah, totally. Definitely. I mean, I mean you know, I, I don't think I've read something too. like, don't feel like you have to write your first novel and you have to learn another language and like, <laughs> you know, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Don't like, I think a lot of, a lot of um, creative people are feeling that pressure like, oh, well, since I'm in quarantine, I have to, 
you know, yeah. <laughs> write a movable feast. And it's like, <laughs> no, you don't really have to do that. <laughs> you just kind of got to survive. You got to get to the other side. Yeah, just, just take it easy. It's only been a month. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, that's the thing is like people are really starting to freak out. It's like it's only been a month. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have not to. that long. That's right. And we're going to have to get used to it. Around for a while, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, you must be horrifyingly opening emails in the morning or however you get your news from your business people. But like finding out about, uh, oh, that shit in September is canceled. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're... um everything in May and June is canceled and I'm, I'm sure there's going to be more later. I mean, I think, I think my, my crew of people are definitely a little, maybe a little too optimistic right now. I mean, yeah. I'm being optimistic, but I like, they're just kind of, they don't want to cancel that stuff yet just because we need to see what happens. And yeah, yeah. They're trying to let promoters and everything else kind of do it first. Yeah, I think you have to in a way. But yeah, I mean, I'm seeing like a lot of festivals that I was involved in in August are gone. Like as of this week, that's like the new thing is like August seems to be off the table now. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a little disheartening, but but whatever. I think you're right, though. Like there is kind of a peaceful coolness to being locked up here at home in a way that, you know, as as working musicians, we don't really get to spend that kind of time. And suddenly we have the time and, and we're probably all going to come out of this like better guitar players. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, yeah, it, it's, to me, it's, I've been enjoying that. Like I love the road and everything, but the last seven years we've been really on the road. We've been making albums and yeah, you know, one, one cycle into the next. And, um, and I love that we're able to do that. But I mean, I, you know, it's actually been nice to me to just have some time at home, like that, have a break that is forced and it's not like it wouldn't have been imposed otherwise. And uh, nobody's, nobody's sitting here going like, why, where's my fucking work? Where's my gigs? Like we all know that nobody has any gigs. (laughs) I, I, I find it to be pretty good. I mean, like my, I feel like my, back is more relaxed than it has been just with like stress and things like that. Like I'm more relaxed than I ever have been. It's weird. You know, a lot of people are stressed out and I'm like, I don't know. I feel really rested and pretty clear headed. Mm And yeah, you know, now that my financial situation is uncertain as is so many other people, but there's nothing I can do about that right now. So that's right. (laughs) How long have you been in Nashville for? I've lived in Nashville for nine, going on nine years. Okay. And, and you were brought up or like you, you came up in Charleston, right? I did. Tell me about that. Like what, what, what was the music scene like there? And so that was sort of like in the, in the nineties or the two early, early two thousands, I guess you were sort of like coming up as a youngster in the music scene there. What was, what was going on there? Um, so I moved to, to Somerville, which is right outside of Charleston. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a big suburb town. Um, and we moved there in, uh, 1999. So I was around 13. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's where I went. I finished out middle school then went to high school and Charleston was at the time known for a band called jump little children. And, um, jump little children was a really, really cool 
kind of alternative, like indie. I would say they definitely had an artsy sound to mm-hmm. them. Um, and they had a really... They were like the happening band on the scene at the time? Yeah, they were pretty happening. And then also South Carolina was just known for Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so Hootie and the Blowfish was like, you know, the band that came out of South Carolina that obviously we know became huge for a while. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, as I got old enough to get downtown and realize what kind of music scene there was, there's, I thought that was a really great scene. Um, for there's a good jazz scene there too, right? Yeah. They have a lot of jazz. Um, but there was a really good kind of rock and roll scene there that, you know, for a lot of reasons was because of jumped little children. Uh, okay. and so that, that was what was happening when, when I was old enough to get out and see music and things like that. Um, there's always been kind of a jam scene too. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is, which comes with being a college town. Um, of course. And you know, there's beaches there. So that they kind of go hand in hand, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, but you know, it was a really, really good local music scene. A lot of creative people, a lot of art, a lot of jazz. They have the Piccolo Spoleto Festival, um, there. And, uh, I found it to be very vibrant. And how, like, what was your path to playing music? Were you, like, were you in high school with people that were like-minded that, that you were getting into bands and stuff with? Yeah, I mean, the, there was the, I would say the typical, like, garden variety of, like, you know, dudes that played guitar, <laughs> you know, in high school, in which, you know, you, yeah. uh, which is a rules of attraction, you know, you just like end up partnering up with those guys and then jamming at their house. And, you know, I probably, I probably was in a couple of bands that lasted a week, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. sure. And, uh, and that's, that's how that goes. It's pretty typical. But, um, one thing my high school did have, which was started by a, uh, a teacher that, wasn't one of my teachers, but her name was Mrs. Fastigi, and she was an old deadhead. And uh, really, yeah. And my my high school was a football school, and we had about three thousand kids that went to that high school. And the coach of the football team was a guy named John McKissick, and he actually he actually just passed away in the re- in recent years. But he is the most winningest football coach of all time in terms of really? pro, college, or high school. <laughs> he was on the cover of Time Magazine. Uh, wow. The guy, you know, was just, I mean, I think he lived to be like, I don't know, 98 or something. Uh, yeah. He lived to be, he lived a long time. But, um, so I'm trying to give you a little perspective um, that this this deadhead teacher named Mrs. Fastigi started this thing called Guitar Club. Awesome in a football school because she noticed there was enough kids that played music that they didn't share those interests of being cheerleaders, yeah, you know, or, uh, football players or, or being in the sports or anything like that. And so like, we were like a little bit of this, like disenfranchised part of the school. (laughs) And so she, I mean, I'm very fortunate. Like she gave us, you know, when we would have like club day or whatever, like, we were in guitar club. I was actually the president of the guitar club 
<laughs> I don't know. They voted me president of the guitar club, but I don't know what that means or what that meant uh-huh. at the time. Um, but, you know, and then we got to do a performance and all that kind of stuff. So, so what, so was she actually teaching guitar or was she just like facilitating kids to jam together? Exactly that. Just facilitating kids. You could bring your guitar to school that day, you know, and then it, 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 it kind of became like you were allowed to bring your guitar to school. Um, and then there sure. was, like, there was definitely like some after school things that she would put together, you know, um, she just loved it though. <laughs> well, that's cool. You got to have somebody like that at some point, you know, and, and if you can, if you're surrounded by jocks in a, in a situation like that, when you're like 14, 15, it's pretty important having somebody that is like, Hey, there's other shit going on out there too. Yeah. And you know, I, I actually dropped out of high school probably shortly after that because I just lost interest in it completely. And, um, mm. you know, looking back, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I wish I had finished out, but then again, like my path has been fine and I'm, I'm in a good place and, you know, yeah. so I don't know what would have changed. I don't know what would have happened if I had finished out, but I, I remember I would bring, you know, the, the, the Beatles anthology series that came out in the nineties yeah. It had the, the DVD and the CD and then it had the book companion and, uh, sure. It was a huge book, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've I, I had that book and I would bring that, that was like my textbook. Like I would just bring that book in my book bag and, um, while everyone else would get their books out, I would just get, get my Beatles anthology book out and read it during class. <laughs> and, uh, I wouldn't bother anyone. I wouldn't, you know, I would just keep to myself and read my book. And, and obviously that's a problem. Um, but, you know, I, I got kicked out of class for that and just things like that. I was starting to rebel against the system. But, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, at 15, I decided what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to make music. So what were, your, what were your big influences? Like, obviously, the Beatles were a big one for you. Um, what else, like, really turned you on to the whole thing of, like, playing guitar? Well, at the time, it was really funny because I was equally into the Beatles as I was Fish. It was really funny because it was oh, yeah. like a lot of kids in my school were into widespread panic and things like that. But I loved playing the guitar. And when I started playing the guitar, I mean, it was all I started at the age of 10. So, you you know, what was popular at the time? I mean, it was Metallica. Right. You know, 1996. I mean, so, you know, they were on the cover of every guitar magazine, all that stuff. So, you know, I learned like a lot of Metallica stuff and all that. But it was also the typical guitar heroes, Hendrix, Clapton, Jimmy Page. and But I was always really into like Pete Townsend and The Who because my dad was a big Who fan. So you had some of that stuff going on around the house that wasn't that wasn't just like the, the current hits of the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I- and, and was your dad playing guitar too? He didn't. He knew a little bit on the guitar, but he he wasn't like a guitarist or anything. Um, so like, what you know, by the time I got in like Fish, I mean that appealed to me because Trey Anastasio is such a great guitar yeah. player, you know, and it's very like it's very improvisational, and I just found it to be. I, I don't know. I, I think I learned a lot from being into both of those bands who are entirely different uh-huh. from one another. But I think I learned a lot from from being in the into those bands at the same time. 
So when you were at that age, like listening to Fish, did you understand how improvisational they were? Or like, did you just think that's just how the song goes? There's still like a great big long guitar solo in there. No, or, I, like, did I, you understand? Yes, I knew that it was, they were a jam band and that's what jam bands did, you know, because my, okay. um, my mom was really into the Grateful Dead. Um, okay. You know, and uh, that's why, and I always rebelled against the Grateful Dead for a long time, for some reason, like I liked fish, because like I don't like mom. Dead, you know. Um, but now, when I hear the Grateful Dead, I absolutely adore it, and it almost brings me like there's this calming feeling that comes over me, and I think that's because maybe my mom was listening to them like while I was in the womb, or who knows. But it's yeah. something that I connect with now. Um, and I just love it, and I don't actually sit down to learn the songs or anything. I just listen to it. I'm kind of with you on that. Like I definitely, well, I, I guess I got into the dead when I was young ish, but, but at first they, they didn't grab me in the same way that stuff like Hendrix and Clapton and the stones did that. Those kind of, those kind of bands seemed more immediate to me or something. And the dead just seemed a little too meandering, but now I totally dig it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. How much were you playing around Charleston when you were like in high school? Were you did did you have a band at all that was like actually gigging or no? I did. I had a band called the Revolving Forty Five. Um, nice. And uh, and we were like a weird mixture. Like I was really into like Oasis. I was really into the Beatles. Yeah. Really into Fish. Really into the Almond Brothers. I was into everything. <laughs> so uh-huh. We didn't know what we were. You know, I was just okay. I, I started writing songs. Um, I started singing because like, just like any 14, 15 year old kid in high school, who wants to sing? You know, like right. you're, you're scared. It's shitless to sing. Um, so I started singing because no one else would. That's a good reason. Yeah. And um, I just started doing it and, and figured out that I, you know, had a little bit of, uh, had a relative pitch. Um, you could pull it off. I could pull it off. I didn't know how to use my diaphragm or anything. I was all just singing from my throat, <laughs> what, yeah. like everyone does when they start out. But um, yeah, we did actually start gigging. Like my dad at the time was doing, he was trying to help me like any way he could. Like I think he realized my talent. Like at 15, I was getting pretty good at the guitar um, uh-huh. and, you know, completely self-taught and all that. And uh, yeah. yeah, you never took a lesson from anyone? No, I never took, I just took my first so-called guitar lesson like three weeks ago. <laughs> Who was it from? And it wasn't, it was, uh, I'm friends with uh, Guthrie Trap. Sure, yeah, and, I just had him on the show and, too, actually. Yeah, and um, and it was, you know, I'll even, uh, to me it was a lesson, but it was less like a, a guy like teaching you guitar. It was sort of like, we just talked about some different stuff and how to apply, you know, I wanted to know from him like how, to, how he applies some of the stuff he, he knows and and all that. It was really just trying, it was really just a brain exercise for me. It was trying to open up my brain to some to mm-hmm. different stuff. And, and uh, you know, I ended up teaching him a few things that, a few licks and things like that. Sure. So it was a really good thing. But yeah, I never, I never took lessons or anything. So were you playing regularly around, around Charleston with your crew or? We were or trying to. Just... I mean, like I said, we were underage. So yeah, yeah. we, we, we got like, we were able to book like one or two shows. And I think the people that booked us were under the assumption that we were like at least over 18. 
And then we'd all, we'd go up <laughs> places and there'd be like 30, 15 year old, 16 year old kids that were coming to sit. <laughs> and they'd yeah. be like, you guys can't play here. You know, like this is a bar <laughs> after 8 PM or whatever. And so that didn't go over too well, but yeah, we were able to play a little bit. And then of course, like we broke up, you know, it was a big breakup, yeah. band breakup. Um, and then I, I actually like played guitar in a few punk bands and, uh, which was funny because like I wasn't a punk, but I could play it and I was really good at the guitar. So these punk bands wanted me in their band. Cool. You know, cause I could play the riffs. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a good, good fit. And I'm sure you could learn lots of cool shit by learning those riffs too. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it, it became very applicable later in life when I joined driving and crying. So some punk bands and then, so what was the path to driving and crying? Cause that there's a, there's a good bunch of years there. Like what, what happened? What was your path after, after you dropped out of high school? A couple of years after that, um, I ended up getting, um, well, first my dad passed away in, in 2004 when I was 18, right as that was about to happen, there was a band in Charleston called the working title and they were signed to Universal Records. They were like the buzz band in town. And they needed a guitarist to cop the parts that they laid down in the studio. So they only okay. had one guitar player in the band, so they needed another guitar player. Well, the singer played guitar, but they needed somebody to, like, you know. Do the riffs and yeah, lead like, stuff. Uh, yeah. yeah, auxiliary guy. Um, so I ended up getting hired by them. And uh, I started making, like, 140 bucks a week getting checks from Universal Records, going on tour with those guys. And, you know, I was just giving that money right back to my mom because my dad had just passed away. Um, but, you know, right. that was like, that was like seeing the entire country in a van. Just, so that was like a hardcore touring situation. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I was 18, um, you know, just just like <laughs> taking it all in, man. And from yeah. that the guy that was out there doing merch and helping drive and stuff, you know, you always got to have like your, your buddy, um, his your name, road buddy. Yeah. Yeah. His name was Jonathan Carmen and he played drums and he, you know, he didn't want to do merch and, and drive the van for the rest of his life. So he was like, why don't we jam when we get back? Well, anyway, we started jamming. So we started our own band and we started a band called Leslie. And I ended up getting my, really good friend who had played with me in revolving 45. His name was Jason Fox. He played the bass a little bit. So like we ended up becoming this power trio band and, and we did that for seven years. That was another thing where we never got signed. We never even had a booking agent, but we had a manager and we ended up getting, getting some places, but never, you know, to that breaking point. Never. Um, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But we met. That's that was. Those were really like the formative years of my career because that's when I, you know, became into like you know early manhood and like I was like that was like from oh man eighteen to twenty five. Twenty five. You know. Yeah. Um, and and that was a was that a was that a pretty active touring band too. Yeah, very active touring band. I mean, every, you know, as active as we could be with not having a booking agent. But yeah, we we booked our own shows, man. We'd hop on tours. I mean, that's how I met like Blackberry Smoke. 
That's how I met Driving uh-huh. and Crying. That's how I met Jason. Um, okay. I we we used to do some touring with uh, the Mooney Suzuki, that band from New York. Um, uh-huh. We did a big tour with a band called Bang Camaro from Boston, who had like eight lead singers. They all sang at the same time. <laughs> it was pretty wild. Um, they did like Def Leppard harmony stuff, like live. Wow, crazy. Yeah. That's what led me to driving and crying was having my band Leslie. And so they were just a band that you like they existed already. They needed a guitar player and and thought of you or something and just poached you from your trio. Is that what happened? Well, what happened was I I was having like a quarter life crisis is what they call it. And then <laughs> the band wasn't where I wanted it to go or where, yeah. where I wanted it to be. Um and uh I don't know, I was just doing a lot of things. I was 25. I was in Charleston living with my girlfriend, who's my wife now, and um, and uh, I, I think I just needed. I, w- I was I was wasn't feeling good about where my career was and and where I was and everything, and uh, needed a change. And I saw, you know, I'd been coming to Nashville to do some writing, and and we had a good little friend base here, and uh, you know, I was like, I think I need to move out of Charleston. I need to move to Nashville, and maybe just play for other people or something like just, I, I realized I sat down and I asked myself like, what do people pay me to do? And I was like, they don't pay me to make my own music. Cause that ain't right. That's not how I'm making money. <laughs> so I said, what do they mm-hmm. pay me to do? I was like, they pay me to play guitar. Yeah. And I said, well, that's, that's a cool realization. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's a, it's really basic, you know, it's easy. It is, but out. it's hard to, it's hard to learn that about yourself or your situation. Yeah. Because I, I, well, you have to put your dreams and your ego aside. You have to put yep. all these expectations that you had of yourself away and just look at what's, right. what's really going on. And I said, well, like I've never, I've not barely made any money making my own music. So that's not what people pay me to do. Not saying I'm not good at it or didn't think I was good at it, but that just wasn't the bottom line. And so I, I was getting paid to play in cover bands and that's what people paid me to do. And I said, mm-hmm. that's probably what I'm best at. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. at 25, that's what I was realizing. So I right. said, well, I think, I'm a, I think I need to move to Nashville. Candace, I want you to come. And, and, you know, this was kind of hard at the time, but I was like, I'm going either way. I'm going, you know, because I, I, needed, I needed to do it. Um, and, she, and she came with me. Um, so, that was, so that's kind of what happened. I, I ended up leaving the band and right at that time driving and crying um had parted ways with their guitarist and they found out that i had quit my band and so tim nielsen the bass player driving and crying had just moved to charleston and he called me because i I had some rapport with them little relationship there and so he called me he said this is right after he moved to town he said "Uh, hey we got a gig in Asheville, north carolina and i was wondering if you if you could give me a ride my car's in the shop and i was like yeah sure man he was like well you know bring your guitar and amp and stuff and you know sit in with us and i said uh all right sure i'll do it and so we wrote up there and about after like the first or second song kevin saw me in the crowd and motioned me to come up there and i ended up playing like the entire show with him after that show we were talking after we had loaded up and kevin was like what are you doing for the rest of the week and i said well, I'm just going to go back home to Charleston and hang out with my girlfriend, I guess. And he said, uh, well, we got like six shows. We're going up to New York. 
going up to Connecticut. He's like, if you want to play the, you know, if you want to come with us, man, hop in. I'll give you a hundred bucks a day. And uh, sweet. I was like, I was like, I'm in. Under one condition, we got to go to Walmart so I can get some socks and underwear. <laughs> because I didn't have any clothes. I just was going up there and back. I just was like. Oh, like you weren't even going to go home first. You were just gone with them. No, yeah. I just got in the van because they, <laughs> they didn't have time to go. Right. Yeah. So I called Candace awesome. and said, hey, they want me to play. Not coming home. I was like, I'll, you know, I'll bring home like 600 bucks. <laughs> It's like, yeah, yeah, go do it. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and so was that it? Like after that point, you were just in the band? That was it. Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah. it. Did you make records with those guys or were you just touring with them? I did. I made four records. They were all EPs, but we did a series of EPs. Okay. And, uh, I made four of them. And were those pretty good learning experiences for you? Like like up to that point, had you had much studio experience before before those EPs? I had a good bit because I made some records with Leslie um, okay, so I yeah. was starting to get that under my belt. And then once I moved to Nashville, um, I, I had a friend in Paul Ebersold who had his base here and, uh, he used to work with my old man, Leslie. And so we ended up doing some of the EPs with Paul. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so, but, but with doing the EPs of driving and crying, yeah, I got a lot more experience out of that for sure. Tell me about your like early-ish, like that around that era, um, recording experiences. Like, tell me what, maybe a couple things that like uh, suddenly occurred to you about the difference of playing in the studio on a record versus what you'd been doing, which was playing so much live gigs and like probably long solos and stuff like that. Whereas in the studio, you have to kind of tone that down and have a different approach. Were there were there certain things that you remember like? being big moments in those sessions? Well, not just in those sessions, but I mean, because, you know, there was a lot of, we were doing a lot of live stuff. Um, I mean, I, I think I learned just from recording in general, like, and working with Paul, I just learned so much about like intonation on the guitar in the studio, mm -hmm. um, how to play hard and play light to get a certain sound, um, how to make the most out of your pickups. Um, what, what do you mean by that? Like physically, like in, in what way? Just tonally, like knowing like middle position and then back in your neck volume down some uh -huh. and you get this nice glassy top in with the, with the body of the neck pickup in there. And, and it's a great sound. Um, learning how to apply certain guitars against the other guitars. Like I got a telly, well, I'll put a Les Paul over here. That's a big one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so so many things, you know. Um, were you um, collecting instruments and amps and stuff by then, or you just, or did you not have enough dough to be buying stuff yet? No, I I, I still don't have enough dough to. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, but you've got a, I mean, you've got a good collection now of, of, you know, they may not be super valuable, but you've got like all, you've got all the sounds covered. Uh, back yeah, then, I, did you just have like a guitar or two? Yes, I did. <laughs> I just had to, you know. Um, yeah. And um, were you were you playing Les Pauls back then, or what? What was your main axe? It was. It's always been my Gibson SG, and then you know paired with a Tele. But for a long time, man, like I just had that SG. That was the only guitar I had. 
Uh, what drew you to the SG? That's kind of an interesting, like, first main guitar. Like, w- was it uh, was it just the only thing around, and just happened to be something that you bought? Or- Frank Zappa. Oh yeah. He's he's the one that made me want an SG, and then Pete Townsend after that, and then Angus Young. Okay. And I also like lightweight, you know, body. Yeah. I like the cutout, the the sharp cutout where you can get up on the higher yep. frets. I love the way they look. They are cool. I find that you can get some really like almost stratty sounds of them out of them. You can get some really good sounds. They aren't as like chunky as Les Paul, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I, they, they, it's my favorite Gibson guitar is the SG for sure. Do you still have that same one that you were using back then? Or have you upgraded and got new ones since then? No, I just have the one. <laughs> cool. Right on. Actually, no. Yeah. I just lied to you. Um I ended up getting one <laughs> last year. I got another one last year. I got the um, Pete Townsend Signature SG Special. Not the custom shop version, but just the, you know. Oh. Yeah, with P90s. Oh, it's got P90s in it. That's what makes it special. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, that's what makes it the special. And then, like, you know, as far as what makes it Pete Townsend, it just they just based it off the one that he played at uh, Live at Leeds. You mentioned Paul Ebersold, and I don't know much about him, but I know that he also, you worked with him on your new record, and maybe we could just hop fast forward there and um, talk about your 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 new record, which is I know is jumping way ahead, but who cares? No. Um, no. So uh, tell me a bit about the, the sessions for that and, and how it came about. Um, and uh, yeah, well, let's just talk about that record for, for a minute. Um, well, I started writing for that record... Um, Let's see. Oh my God. Time is going. I started writing for that record, I guess, in like mid to late 2018. Um, I wrote a song mm-hmm. called Good Man that's on the record. Yeah. That song became what what was that song. Once I wrote the song, I realized that I, I needed to write some other songs around it and put it on a record. What was Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What about that song that made you feel like that? Um, I felt like it, it, I felt like it had a, a vibe of a single, but I felt like the subject matter and everything would be better served if it just had a bunch of other songs that were equally as good around it. Um, cool. I also had, previously released three singles like a year or so leading up to writing good man. So I did feel like it was time to, uh, to step out and do another album. The last one came out in 2016. So, um, I thought I owed it to myself to, to make a full album. Um, so I went in to record the album in May of 2019 and I had been doing some producing with some smaller bands and writers and stuff like that. And uh, I felt that I could self-produce and also wanted to prove it to myself that I could do it or see if I could do it. <laughs> if not, fall on my face and then let somebody come <laughs> and save me. But 
I felt like I could do it. So then I, I called Paul and I said, Hey man, I'm thinking about doing this, but I'm thinking about producing it myself. You know, would you still be involved in it on the engineering side of it? And he was like, absolutely. He was like, you need to see if you can do this. So let's do it. I'll help you. So that's, that's kind of what led to the sessions for, for anybody out there. And, um, you know, with limited budget, I did, a, I did a lot of pre-production at home. You know, I, I, I like to write songs and then make demos and pretty fully realized demos, actually. Yeah, I wondered about that because I, like, I wanted to ask you about how you come up with some of the like the hooky guitar parts and things like that. And, and I wondered if it was kind of a thing that just developed during the recording process or whether you came in like with full on ideas for all that stuff. Yeah, I mean... There's still some magic like like it. say in um like uh like don't worry has like those George Harrisony floating melodies at the top there and th- things like that were, were those like evolving in the studio or did you have those in mind when you got in there? That I, so that's a great example um and thank you by the way of the George Harrison compliment but the uh, that song I wrote here at the house I programmed some drums and then I played some acoustics, and then um, I just got this so used bomblet mic, and I was trying it out on that same amp I brought to your house, that Electar amp. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I just was, like, making a little demo, and, okay, I'm going to try a little electric thing on here. Kind of, I was almost, like, wanting to do, like, a wonderful Tonight or George oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. vibe, you know. Sure. Um so that's what came out, and and I didn't replay the guitar when we went in to do the record. I literally brought. Oh, you just kept all those. In. I stripped it of the bass and drums, and and Fred Eltringham, who was the drummer, and Jimbo Hart, who's the bass player, they played to my demo. Wow, cool! How was that? Like, did did that go flawlessly, or was it a struggle? <laughs> no, I guess you know, I did it to a click. You know? Oh, okay. So it was in time, and everything was there. Okay, cool. Yeah. And um, we just, I, and those electrics that are floating through the whole thing. I mean, I, I was like, I'm not replaying that because I'll never play. Like that was like first take stuff. You know, I'm here at my house, right. comfortable, not thinking about anything and just playing. And so I was like, there's no way I'm going to play that stuff the same way in the same spots. And you'd obviously taken the time to record it well and stuff. It sounds great. It doesn't, it doesn't stick out as being something that was like done half-assed it, it sounds <laughs> <Yeah>. like a <laughs> thank you <laughs> well i mean my recording setup at home is really simple but i mean you know it's it's you know put a mic in front of an electar amp and you're you're halfway there yeah just yeah i mean it's it, uh, with a good guitar and yeah. um and a good part and you're you're good to go all the components were there so one thing that i i remember about working uh, in the studio with you that, that was really fun. And I wondered if you, if you could talk about how this applied to, to the, anybody out there record is like when we, when we were doing a session here, we were both kind of like this where I don't know about you, but for me, like I, when we were doing parts, I was, I was thinking about like other parts that might go down well, and you were doing the same thing. You would pick up like a 12 string or a, another electric and, and do layers right away. Do you, do you think about that kind of stuff as you're recording your own music and how do you avoid just like endlessly tinkering? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I was like, that was something that was in the front of my mind. Um, as I was producing this, I was like, I don't want to 
like I want there to be enough production value, but I also want to stay pretty sparse too. Like I want, Mm -hmm. if all the parts are, if all the things are doing what they're supposed to be doing, then you don't need to add a ton of stuff. Yeah. Having Paul and Fred and Jimbo in the room, I also had my, my great friend Todd, who was just there hanging. Um, Mm -hmm. I trust all these people. Right. And I know that they're going to be real with me. And so I think that's important if you're self-producing to have people in the room that you trust that will totally. speak up and, and maybe say like, uh, you got better or that group, yeah. we need to work on this groove, Sadler. This isn't where, you know, um, mm-hmm. maybe there's a better part there, Sadler, you know, things like that. Like, so I think that's just, just as much as an idea of a part. I think that's, that's just as important is to have totally that you surround yourself with people to trust. So, I mean, in those sessions, I really was trying to play great rhythm guitar and sing great while Jimbo and Fred, while we were tracking. And we honestly kept a few of the vocals and the I rhythm bet. guitar. Um, and I, I, that's something I kind of picked up from recording records with Jason Isbell is that he kind of just comes out the gate like everybody just plays for keeps out the gate. So like, it's a lot more fun to track that way because when a singer is laying it down, if if he's able to without certain bleed or something like that, then it's a lot more fun to track because you you're kind of really in it. Yeah, you're responding and all that stuff yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. But some of the vocals we kept were uh, the title track. Anybody out there is a live vocal with the rhythm guitar and bass and drums. That's all one take, and then I think. Peace and Harmony was a live vocal as well that we ended up keeping. Uh-huh. And so you would just focus on rhythm guitar. You you weren't really laying down any lead stuff at all uh, on the live no. tracking session? No, I was just trying to play like how I would live. And there was like a few fills and stuff, but I was really just trying to keep it, you know, very um, rhythmically satisfying for, for the bass bassist and drummer to do their thing yeah you mentioned uh anyone out there the like the song the actual song and um that's got that kick-ass riff off the top um is that something that you do you keep like a voice memo library of of riffs and stuff or do you just is it song by song you just write that as part of the song i mean it, it's kind of got like a rush vibe to it almost uh, uh yeah it works. i'm just wondering <laughs> i actually don't write as many riffs as Folks would probably think <laughs> um, <laughs> that that song was based around the riff, though. I wrote that song with Oddly Freed, actually. Um, it, I had pretty much nine songs. Stepping back and looking at it, I was like, man, I, I just don't have the one like riff rocker that I really mm-hmm. want on here. And I called Oddly and was like, man, I... I would love to write like a riff rock song. I'm kind of missing one for this record. And I don't know, you know, if we don't get anything, that's fine. But, you know, are you down to give it a shot? And he was like, of course, come over and let's do it. And so, I mean, I knew I was going to get a good riff. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and we certainly came up with a good one, I think. And um, yeah. But what was cool about working with Ollie is like, he really wanted the song to be good. And I did, I did too. But like, you know, he, he really wanted to work hard on, the lyric and, and uh, the melody and everything. Did you write it all in one sitting or was it a thing that developed over time? I think we did it in, in two sittings or maybe 
maybe I think it was like one long session and then I kind of worked on it a little bit at the house and and then kind of sent him a version of it. So he's an interesting cat and he like, you know, in a way he's done a lot of the same things that you have like 15 years before you. Uh, is he a guy that you've hooked up with and is sort of a mentor in some ways to you? Definitely. I call him a friend tour because <laughs> he started as like, you know, kind of one of my guitar heroes and, and, and uh, someone I looked up to, and then I started to hang with him and get to know him. And, you know, I'd say he took me under his wing for sure and, and gave me some cool opportunities along the way. And, and now we're, we're just, we're, you know, we're buds now. Uh, right. But uh, we just connected. I mean, I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's from Burgaw, North Carolina, which is right outside of Wilmington. I grew up in North Myrtle Beach, which is, you know, two hours or an hour and a half south of Wilmington on the coast. Um, so we, you know, we just connect. I mean, we just, we talk about things like, I mean, he used to gig in, in Myrtle Beach in bands, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you remember of, seeing him back in those days? Well, I saw him with the Black Crows. Oh, okay. Yeah. They played the uh, House of Blues in North Myrtle Beach. And um, that was around 1996 or seven, I guess, 98, okay. somewhere yeah. in there. Um Steve Gorman will know, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, and so I mean, yeah, I mean that that was a concert that absolutely changed my life, you know. So another guy that you mentioned that's on the record, and I'm just wondering what your history with, but he's he's so great uh, is Fred Eltringham, and he plays with Cheryl Crow, but does a ton of sessions. I've done a couple of sessions with him, and um, he's just like a really inspiring musician to 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 be around. I I find um, yes, but. Could, can you tell me about your history with him and like how you landed on these players for this record? Because he's not somebody that you're actively touring with. Yeah, so Jimbo is the bassist in the 400 unit, which is the band I'm yeah. in, obviously. And um, Fred, I met through Oddly, and then I knew I knew him from his days in Ben Queller. Um, I just I knew who he was, and then I saw him play with the Wallflowers years later. Oh yeah, right. I forgot he did that. Yeah, and um, it it was like you know I just I started to get to know him a little bit through through Oddly, and we we did a, a couple like cover band gigs and things like that, or or should I say like tribute type gigs, not cover band gigs, but you get the point. Um, yeah, and then we Oddly. Uh, was uh, tasked with putting a band together to honor Joe Walsh in Seattle, Washington a few years ago. And he called me to be the other guitar player in the band opposite him. And then we used Rob mm-hmm. Kearns, who's Cheryl's bass player, and then Fred on drums. And then we used a guy named Jimmy Wallace, who plays with Joe and played in the Wallflowers and all that good stuff on keyboards. And uh, that was like a life-changing experience for me because, I mean, we were the house band that got to back up all these great people, Todd Rundgren and Paul Rogers and Kenny Wayne wow. Shepherd, Robert Randolph, uh, Ringo was there, you know, wow. Joe came in and played some. Um, it was a really inspiring experience. So after that, I, I mean, me and Fred really, I think, bonded <laughs> after that because we, you know, we, we got to hang around each other and get to know each other more. And, and we just connected on so many things like, we would walk and go get lunch and that, you know, we talk about like all the British rock and power pop that we loved. And he's a big Who fan as well as I am and uh, Oasis. And so we just connected. And then about a year or so later, 
I went in and cut these songs, these singles called Still Kids and Anywhere But Here. And I called Fred and, and I was like nervous to call him because like, I don't ever want to, uh, like, I felt like he was a friend at the time, but he's also like a session guy. And I mean, he's like, he's a cat, you know? Um, yeah. And I was like, ah, I don't know if he'll do this. Like he probably needs to get paid a certain amount of money and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I just was like, I'm calling him and asking him. And he was like, dude, of course. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and he just loved it. And, and he actually really enjoys the music that I make. And so it just felt, you know, it felt natural to, to give him the call to, to be on the record. How long did you spend on those initial tracking sessions? Like, was it, was it quick? Those guys aren't musicians that that fuck around taking forever to get tracks like did you just do it in a couple days or yeah how did that go down yeah i think we did it in like two days the bass and drums yeah. and simple you know the basic tracks yeah for sure i think we yeah i think we copped four and then one of the songs good man was actually tracked elsewhere as more like a demo that ended up being the the version on the record and then the song Curtain Call is just me with a string section. So, yeah, I think we did. We cut eight tracks in two days. Got four a day. Nice. I had the demos, too. And I would I would send Freddie the demos the morning of. Yeah. Of what songs we were going to do. <laughs> that way, he didn't live with them too much. Like, he could just listen to them on the way. That's a great way to go, I find. Because, yeah, you don't want to get too comfortable, really. No. But he could kind of get a vibe which is really, yeah. to me, the most important part. <laughs> um, you know, maybe we could bridge from, from this to talking a bit about the, the, the gig you do with Jason Isbell, um, because you mentioned self-producing and, and working on your own material, and we've talked about how, you know, the challenges of that. And I'm just wondering how the approach, how you find it, found it to be different from working in a situation like recording with, with Jason and... Um, you know, I know you've played on a, a few of his records now too, and uh, so maybe like just as a as a side guy versus a versus a, a songwriter and and band leader, what are the challenges or the differences that you find as as a guitar player in that situation? Well, the the thing that that's really you know different about my day job is that you know with with say like the bass player, drummer, and keyboard player in the four hundred unit, they're the only people that play those instruments. So right. they kind of have their thing on lockdown. Like with me, it's like, I'm not the only guitar player in the band. Yeah. You know, I, I sh like a lot of those things I get to do on my own or say in other groups, like I'm not necessarily getting to do like in the studio or anything like that. Like that's kind of like not why I'm there. Um, you know, because Jason is, is a wonderful guitar player himself. Um, he he is a monster. Like you forget you forget that sometimes because he yeah. everyone's just sort of focused on the singer songwriter thing. But like he's a he's a monstrous guitar player too. Yeah, he he knows his way around the the guitar, and so yeah. and I get that man. I mean, you know, it took a little bit of like batting my ego down a little bit when I joined the band because I mean, as any as it would for anyone who's in my position, like you come from sort of being the guy to kind of being like you know not the guy. And, yeah. um, but I mean, I love playing in that band and also I, you know, I, I do get some freedom live and things like that, which I'm very like thankful for because I get to express myself live and I get it to, seems like it. Yeah. I get to express myself in the studio, but it's definitely not as much of a, the, the freedom that like, you know, I don't, I'm not doing solos or 
really like coming up with these like signature parts or anything. Um, well, yeah. a few here and there, but you know, it's kind of like Jason isn't making records all the time. So when he makes a record, like, you know, he wants to play some fucking guitar. And I totally yeah. get that. It's not like, you know, when Eric Clapton makes a record, he's not like letting Doyle Bramhall play all the solos. Right. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe one day we'll, we'll, we can actually do get to a, a place of like, you know, I hope it, it would be awesome. I don't know why we haven't yet, but I, I hope we could get to a place of maybe there would be like a something like more, more Felder and Walshy or something happen on recording. Would right. be, would, I don't, you know, I don't really understand why we haven't done that yet, but um, that's not my call to make, you know. Um, Was that a like a learning curve, understanding what your role is going into the studio and really having to be like, okay, I'm not here to do this i'm here to do something else yeah man and i didn't realize that the the first record i made with them was something more than free but like i didn't know how dave cobb really worked and i mean no one was really communing communicating anything um and so a lot of what a lot of my parts on that record are like really understated because i didn't know we were like keeping my i didn't know it was going to be like that nashville type session i didn't know we were going to be keeping some of my first pass guitar things where I just heard this. I literally just heard the song two seconds ago and mm-hmm. I'm looking at where the vocal's sitting. I'm not going to be like ripping a bunch of licks and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to play some pretty understated like guitar out the gate. And then like they ended up keeping a lot of that stuff. <laughs> so where did you do that record? Was that done at, at Dave Cobb's place, like at RCA or where? that was that sound emporium? Oh, okay. Yeah. Were you set up pretty much like a like a live band would yeah. or yeah definitely. okay um, and uh, you know and there's also like it, it's good it's good to to be in the position I'm in you know because it allows you to like you're you're using a lot of space in the music because you know I mean there's keyboards there 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 are four lead instruments essentially in that yep. band there's fiddle. There is keyboards, there's me and Jason. So, yeah. and there's vocals. So, I mean. How do you guys navigate that? Like, is there, is Dave pretty hands-on as far as like the orchestration goes or is Jason or do you guys just sort of do it without talking about it? Um, when J- when Jason sits down and plays a song on the, on the couch, which is usually where we go and he just plays us a song we're about to do, um, Dave immediately kind of comes up with little like lines Mm-hmm. for people to try and and i mean I, sometimes i wish there was like more time to maybe come up with each each person can maybe come up with their own kind of thing but you know he comes up with these really like good simple lines and fat and they end up kind of committing to those pretty fast and that's kind of what happens yeah. So is that a general rule that that you're not ever doing like road tested stuff with him? You're just showing up and hearing the song for the first time pretty much across the board? Yeah, there was only one song on this record that that we had road tested, and that's a song called Overseas. And mm-hmm. um and uh all the other songs we we hadn't heard before. That's a challenge. I mean, that's like really approaching it like a Nashville session. It, you're right. It, it it's kind of a and it's a whole different trip from playing a, in a live band. Uh, so are you like madly scribbling out a chart when he's playing it for the first time or are you a good ear memorizer? Um, I'm, I'm pretty good with, with the ear, you know, um, I do, I do make some charts, 
um, depending on if I feel like the song is worthy of a chart and, and meaning like if it has some interesting turns or something in it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, most of the time the songs are simple enough chord wise. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll sit and sometimes play it three times or play it six times or, you know. Um, but Dave's on the floor with us and, you know, he's, he's good at, at um, I think Dave's just good at like simplifying things. Like getting you to boil down a part to the basics. Yeah, like like getting like Jimbo, who's an incredible bass player, like, you know, like getting him to just play like some whole notes for a section. I mean, like he's, you know, kind of the big picture, you know, um, thing. So yeah. this, this new record, I felt like we all had more time spent on everybody's like thing, which was nice to see. Are you talking about the Nashville sound or I'm talking or? about the brand, the new record we got coming out called reunion. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So you did something more than, than free and then the Nashville sound that was Dave Cobb too. Was there much difference in those sessions or was it pretty much the same kind of vibe? Like just showing up hearing the song for the first time and diving yeah, in. Yeah. Yeah. It was the same vibe. Um, uh, from my perspective though, I, I, that when we went into making Nashville sound, I just, if I felt a part or something, I just played it out the gate. Right. Because I knew I learned from last time, like, you know, no one, it didn't seemingly, it, it didn't, I didn't feel like anyone was going to give me a chance to go in and find like a better part or anything. So I, I was, you had to just this time around, man, I'm just going to lay it down. <laughs> and if I mess up, I can fix it. So at, with so much sonic space, like, yeah, you mentioned there's, there's Amanda's playing fiddle and, and there's keys and you and Jason, do you ever feel like, man, I'm just, I, I can't really, I'm not making this any better. Does that ever happen where you're just like, I, I, I can't think of anything to play in this situation? Sometimes it's like, I'll just, you know, sometimes it's like, well, what I, I'm always like thinking like, just what does the song need? Like, do I need to play electric guitar on this? Maybe not. Maybe I'll play the nylon acoustic on this, you know, right. um, or just strum another acoustic guitar or just wait until these parts only to come in and play. So, you know, I, I really am just trying to think of not serving myself as a musician, but just serving the song and, and the bigger picture and trying to yeah. just, you know, I, I know what my role is now in the studio with that band. So it's, it's really just, it's a little easier to, to step in and, and not feel like you're getting stepped on or something. Yeah. And I, I, this time around, I I remember that, you know, when I was 15 and listened to Beatles records and stuff, I didn't want to know who played the rhythm guitar. I wanted to know who played that one lick that happens that one time in that song. Yeah. <laughs> like, those were the yeah. things that when I was a kid, I got really, you know, stoked on. Sure, so sure. I kind of had this realization, like, maybe I'm doing that right now. Like, <laughs> that's what you, that's a good goal. Yeah. Having that in mind, that's awesome. Can you, I know we've hopped around here a bit, but can you just tell me how you ended up in Jason's band in the first place? Like what led from what led from um, Driving and Crying into his band? So Jason came to see me with Driving and Crying when we played Muscle Shoals. And I think he had parted ways with his guitar player. And I think he was kind of coming to scope me out. And he, and he was a Driving and Crying fan. And, you know, and um, and then he ended up moving to Nashville, I think shortly after I did or right before or at same same time doesn't matter but he was in nashville he got cleaned up sobered up and uh he made that record southeastern and he played a lot of acoustic guitar on it so he knew he needed another guitar player 
And, uh, you know, I think Amanda brought my name up and said, why don't you call Sadler? And I was in, you know, still in driving and crying at the time. But I mean, it was, it was a pretty easy decision um, because his star was rising and um, although it wasn't where it is now, um, it was still pretty. Yeah. I mean, that, that did take some foresight though, because he wasn't at all what he, what he is now back then. That was like a good, what, six, seven years ago. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, 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 uh, but I, I knew that it was a good opportunity and I, I, Kind of like driving and crying had already sort of had their heyday. Yeah. So, although it was hard to leave that band, it, I felt like it was something I needed to do. That's cool. And so then you just jumped over to his band and you've, you've. Yeah, didn't even have a rehearsal. I went over to his house and we played some acoustic guitars. And then he, he called me a few days later and he was like, well, I was kind of thinking, man, that, you know, if we're going to see if this works or not, like just. Why don't you just come play that gig, this gig we got in Huntsville, and uh, just ride down with 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 us and you know all that and uh, yeah yeah all right cool <laughs> <laughs> so well at his house he gave me like all the CDs and I already had a few copies because I was kind of a I mean I bought the records and stuff um yeah. and uh, and then and I called Derry the keyboard player because we were kind of friends and and um I said. Uh, Man, can you can I can I go down the list of these songs and you tell me which ones y'all play or what? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. so, um, so I kind of had an idea and I just sort of man, you know, I just did what I learned to do in Charleston, playing with cover bands. Like, if I didn't know a song, man, just stay out of the way and yeah. listen. <laughs> is there a is there a musical director? so to speak in that band or is everyone just sort of looking after themselves? Um, I mean, you're kind of on your own and Jason will let you know if he, if you're doing something that he, he's not into, but yeah, you know, um, for, for a while after I joined the band, like he would never really say anything about anything. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I was kind of like, I don't know if I'm playing good or not. I don't, I have no idea. Cause he's not, tell- I was like, and then I kind of get some insight from the other guys. They were like, oh, he'll tell you if you're not playing the right thing or whatever. So, And did that develop? Like eventually did you start getting some feedback one way or the other about things that were working or not working? I think I just started going to him and just going, hey, man, is, that, you know, is everything good? Or, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he'd be like, yeah, man, you sound great. I'd be like, all right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep doing that. Same yeah. thing. And playing in that band, like, is it pretty – like there's a big catalog, obviously. Are you guys doing similar shows night after night on tour or is it like pulling from deep cuts that you don't necessarily play all the time or how, like how fresh do you keep it on the road? It, it stays pretty fresh. I mean, the we'll do a similar show, but we'll, we'll change a few songs out a night, you know, yeah. There, there's obviously the staples that we're going to play, but um. Yeah, we keep it pretty fresh. One thing I wonder about, you know, somebody in in your position where you're basically thought of as, you know, as a side guy and and you've got this gig that's pretty, you know, as far as as profile goes, it's it's pretty much at the top of the heap. Uh, But you also have other interests and ambitions and stuff like that. Do you find that that kind of messes you up sometimes that people just assume you're not available or that you don't get to be around Nashville enough to like really be in on the scene that you're interested or do you find like it's a good balance for you the way that it's working? 
Um, I've, I've run into that a few times. Like, <clears throat> you know, people just assume I'm gone or whatever. But um, all the, I guess over time living in Nashville, I realized that I like I like making records with people like the, yep. the record we did, things like that. But I'm not really trying to be a session man or anything. Um, mm-hmm. I like being in bands. I like being in a band, you know, like yeah. kind of like being a part of a group and having a having a personality and like connecting with people live. Like I don't I don't think my thing is being being a studio guy that plays on a million things a year. And, you know, that that uh, I don't know, it seems it, especially that's interesting because you certainly could if you wanted to. Like, I think if you were here and you started getting into that, you certainly could follow that path if you wanted to, but obviously it's not, not something you're super interested in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still, uh, you know, thank you for saying that. I mean, I, I, some of it though is like, the, it's a pretty close knit circle, especially in some of the session groups. And so, yeah, you know, they don't want road guy coming in and being studio guy, you know, kind of right. like, well, look, we made a decision to be studio guy and not be road guy. Yeah, so get out of our world. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, I know there there is a real thing here for that. Absolutely, and I I fully understand it and agree with it. Yeah, um, it's kind of always been that way too. Like that's nothing new. It's been like that since the '60s for sure. And um, but I, I I guess I I really like the kind of career paths of like the the folks in the Heartbreakers, where you know they were yeah right playing on playing on people's records like. But they weren't like they weren't just like the studio guys, but like they were kind of in the scene a little bit. Like I find that that there, there's kind of less of that in Nashville. Like you know, in LA, there was like Waddy Wachtel was like a studio guy, but he was also like a live guy too. Yeah, like yeah. people would take him on the road. Um, that that's there's kind of less of that here. That's um, true. It's sort of like A and B. It's sort of, it's like black and white, you know. Um, yeah. But I kind of, I, I dig like, you know, Ben Mott would play on a good bit of records and Campbell and, and, um, yeah. so I, I would like to, you know, I, I think I'm, maybe I am doing that. Maybe I am like doing those kinds of things. And, um, but I, I like that because I feel like it's, I don't know, I'm just going to say it. I feel like it's a little bit more meaningful. Yeah, man. I think that's super cool. So as far as your new record goes, it came out like it. I mean, I don't want to be shitty about it, but like it came out at the worst possible time in the history of putting out a record. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, how how has that been? Like, were you going to go out and do a bunch of touring and promotion that you suddenly just had to cancel? I yes, I did like a ton of cancellations. Um, God, but um, you know, I but but it was fine because it seemed, you know it was like I wasn't the only one. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. My record came out the same week we had those tornadoes rip through our town. Um, yeah. And devastated so many <clears throat> things about our town. <clears throat> and then a week later, coronavirus. So, yeah, it was a weird time. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm really, really grateful to everyone who's bought a bought a record. And um, it seems like people are. Maybe maybe more people checked it out because of like the quarantine thing because it was mm-hmm. like something new and maybe they were a little less distracted by everyday life and people seem to be connecting with some of the songs that you know I didn't write knowing that we were going to be quarantined but um 
some of the songs like the title track deals with self deals with like isolation and yeah yeah the song on there called don't worry (laughs) that the literally the hook is don't worry yourself to death and um you know those are the songs people have been kind of posting about a lot i mean that's cool that that's like a classic thing for for great music when it when it like re-relates to a new situation a new environment or a new situation yeah. And and so do you see yourself making more solo records in the near future or is it just something that's going to like it must be I mean it must be hard because you're so busy and away a lot with with the the Isbel situation but uh is it something that you figure you can do every couple of years or how is that going to factor into your current world? Um yeah, I think I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can as long as I can keep doing it, you know, um, this record came out with 30 tigers. So that was like really great. Um, you know, to, to be distributed by them. And, um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, as long as the songs keep coming and I feel like they're good enough, I'll keep making records. Well, thanks for doing this, man. It's great. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Steve. All right. Well, uh, man, I hope to see you, uh, soon out there, you know, maybe we'll cross paths at a, uh, I mean, I don't know. Our festival is even going to be a thing anymore. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, but I, I hope to uh, come back over to your place and jam. That's what I want to do. So let's do that. Yeah. All right. Take All right. care of yourself. Thanks, Sadler. See you, man. Talk soon. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sadler Baden. I will most likely be back next week with another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. If not, then we'll see you in two weeks. I'm not 100% sure yet. Either way, we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Over and out. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Mm